0: We're going to just have a a two-part series on contagious generosity. I know those words may not seem like they go together, but let's see what the word has to say about this. 2 Corinthians, quick quiz. This is one where the guessing of the authors of the New Testament will work in your favor. Who wrote 2 Corinthians? Paul, very good. Yes, yes, stars for all of you. Um, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. Who did he write it to? (laughs) The Corinthians, yeah. All of them? The church, right? The church at Corinth. There were people who lived in Corinth who weren't going to church at this time. And uh, they probably didn't get the benefit of hearing this letter first. But he wrote it to the Christians um, at Corinth. Is this the first letter he wrote to them? Is it the second? Do you know? It's the second one we have in the Bible. Do we know for sure? that uh, He alludes to other letters that he wrote in this book. So we don't know if it was the second or if there, was an, if there was a third Corinthians that came second before this. And we're not sure. But we know that this was not the first time he wrote to the Corinthians. So that, that's important to know. This is a follow-up letter. And that's important for our passage today. I, because it's lengthy, I will read it to you this morning. You can follow along in your notes or on the screen. Or uh, in your Bibles. Here's Paul writing. I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them, and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ, and they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words. I'm going to make an assumption this morning, and I realize that's dangerous, okay? But I'm going to make an assumption I'm going to take this perspective throughout the entire message. I am going to assume that everybody in this room aspires, wants to be generous. I'm going to assume that. Now, I recognize there are a few of you that may not want to be generous. My goal this morning is not to convert you. I'm not going to ask you to come over to the dark side where stinginess doesn't exist. Okay? The reason why I'm doing that is that if you read through all of the teaching in the New Testament on generosity, if you were mining it out, the highest concentration of teaching on generosity are in these ten verses. You see the word six times here. The New Testament never assumes the role of a salesperson trying to convince the the reluctant stingy person to come on over to the dark side and be generous. The New Testament always writes... To the perspective of people who were being generous to feel comfortable and acting on their generous feelings by accompanying them with generous actions. But it also puts up safeguards to keep people from being recklessly generous. That's the perspective the New Testament takes. It, takes. it writes to people who in that day and age, if we put on our first century glasses and our first century hearing aids, it would be written to people who are saying, I want to be generous How do I do it? And people who wanted to be so generous that many of them were giving away their food budget and their clothing budget to people who needed it before they even took care of themselves. So this morning, I'm going to assume that you aspire to be generous. That when you think of the quality of generosity, you would say that is in the category of good qualities. That is in the category of admirable qualities. If your heart is to be stingy, I can't change you. God must. The New Testament assumes that if you are a born-again Christian that a new spirit inhabits your heart, and that is the spirit of Christ. And Christ is the most generous human being who ever walked the face of the earth. There was no man more generous than Christ, and there, and there is no deity being anywhere that anybody ever thought of imagined that is as generous as God. And so if that spirit is living inside of us, the assumption the New Testament makes is that you will naturally start to have impulses and feelings of generosity that may not have been there before. I also want to say that generosity is not a uniquely Christian virtue. You do not have to be a Christian to be generous. Some of the most generous people in terms of total dollars given or amount of sacrifice they make are not Christians. And most of the world religions embrace generosity and giving. So I don't want to suggest that being uh, uh, giving is a uniquely Christian virtue, but I will say that being generous is absolutely consistent with the character of Christ and is indicative of a growing, maturing walk with Jesus. So I want to assume this morning you want to be generous. I'm not going to try and convince you to be generous. So to those of you that want to be that, that's where we're going this morning. Um, the, 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 the reality is, and here's your big idea this morning. The big idea, and this is key, is that God expects obedience and he encourages generosity. Those two terms are important. I'll talk about this a little bit next week. or I'll talk about this in much more detail next week. We're going to look at a story in the Old Testament next week where we really see this jump out. Okay, But um, building on that this morning, i are going to lay a foundation today with this. God expects obedience and encourages generosity. Let me give you an illustration. There are certain expectations Chase Nower has, is my four-year-old. Chase Nower has because he's a nower. Because he's a nower, I have expectations for him. Those expectations are acts of obedience or disobedience to him based on how he responds. One example is this: He is expected that when he's done eating, he will clean up his place setting at the table and he will put it away. He'll put the dishes in the dishwasher. He'll throw his trash away. He'll put, if he has leftovers, he'll cover them, put them in the fridge, put his cup in the refrigerator. Those are his expectations. Do you reward him for that? He gets to live in my house. He gets to eat the food that I buy. He gets me to protect him. He gets me, that's the reward he gets. I expect obedience. There's not a reward for doing things that make you an hour. That's just obedience. It's more of an exchange. Conditions of living in our house are that there's just a certain protocol that I expect. Now, granted, his dinner time is a whole lot more different than my dinner time. When I grew up, look, man, whatever mom put on the table was what was for dinner. It was not a democracy. And you ate everything on your plate. And we did not have a microwave. You could sit there for four hours staring at the spaghetti sauce. Didn't matter. It was going down. My son comes to the dinner table one night this week, and it's set out on the dinner table. He looks at my wife and says, Mommy, that's not what I was expecting from my dinner. It's changed. My wife is not going to be a short order cook. What We put out for dinner is what we have for dinner. There's an expectation, though, in our house of obedience, and that is I expect my son when he's done eating to clean up the plate and put it away. And the reward that he gets is he gets to live in the good graces of his daddy and mommy. But if he returns to the table and says, daddy, can I also take your plate? That's not expected. That's not required. That's being generous. That's going above and beyond. And there are times when my son gets rewarded for going above and beyond. He doesn't get rewarded for doing what's expected. But there's a special pleasure that I get when I see him going above and beyond what's expected. Him cleaning up his plate is obedience. Him offering to clean up my plate and his mother's plate is generosity. Do you understand the difference? In our relationship with God, there are certain things that he expects in order for us to be in right relationship with him. It's things that we we do just because we're his kids. And with giving, it's no different. There is both Old Testament teaching and New Testament teaching that the tithe or the first fruit that comes into us in the form of income, the tithe, the first 10% of the first fruit is returned to God as an act of obedience. It's what's expected. It's what God asks. And that anything that we do, and he asks nothing of the other 90% or of the second through however, second through hundredth fruits. What we do with that is an act of generosity, but our culture has this backwards. Our culture teaches that everything belongs to us and that anything we give to charitable contributions or God is generosity. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God expects obedience, but God doesn't expect or command generosity. The moment God commands or demands us to be generous, it moves out of the category of generosity and into the category of obedience, Generosity is something that we do of our own free will, out of love or based out of need. What generosity is? Generosity is a lifestyle of sharing who I am and what I have that goes above and beyond any expectations or demands. Generosity is a lifestyle of sharing who I am and what I have that goes above and beyond any expectations or demands. Like I said, our culture has us confused. There's a difference between the cultural definition of generosity that I see adopted by the church. And then there's the biblical definition of generosity. It really boils down to whether you live your life as an economic theist or an economic atheist. And I want to also let you know that there are many who live saying, I believe in the one true God and I have a salvation through Jesus Christ, who live as economic atheists. An economic atheist believes that God is a taker. Economic atheists believe that there is there there may or may not be a God, but there's definitely no God over my finances. My finances are mine to do with as I see fit. I am the owner. Economic atheists believe that God expects nothing from my income and that anything that I give is generous. I would like to say that it... That 0% of our echo church family live as economic atheists, that would be completely untrue. Let me explain to you what an economic theist is. An economic theist says God is God of everything, including my finances. We believe that God is not a taker, we believe God is a giver. We believe that I'm not the owner, but that God is the owner. I am simply the steward, I am the manager. That God expects the first percentage of my income. And that generosity begins after obedience is fulfilled. That's what we believe. That's what an economic theist believes. So you have this tension of a cultural definition that says, you know, everything belongs to me. And I'll give God what I want to give God and what I decide to give God. And everything I give God is generous. They're giving is all about generosity. There is no obedience attached to it. Economic theists say, the Lord is the Lord of everything, including my finances. He owns it all. And out of what he gives me, I will return to him the first fruit. The first percentage of what comes up, that's holy. I don't touch it for my car payment. I don't touch it for a vacation. I don't touch it to go through Taco Bell when I don't want to cook dinner. That's holy to God. I won't buy more house than can fit in my 90%. I won't buy more car. I won't spend more. That 10% is sacred to God and I will return it to him. And then I am free to be as generous as my heart would like to be with the rest of what God entrusts to me. So I do want you to understand the biblical definition of generosity is not just any old thing you put in the offering plate or any old thing you give to Habitat for Humanity. The biblical definition of generosity is that which you do that's above and beyond anything that God expects. Is that clear? I'm going to ask if you agree, but is it clear? Okay, cool. We'll move on for the for the eight or nine of you that feel like you're with me on that, okay? Well, Pastor, this isn't making me feel good. Well, I'm not here to make you feel good or feel bad. I'm here to present the word to you and let God do what he wants to do with your heart. I want you to be blessed. I want you to live in obedience. I want you to be prosperous. Um, But I'm here to disciple you. I'm here to be and make disciples. And I don't just skip over the parts of the Bible that make me and you uncomfortable. I go to the parts of the Bible, the whole council of the Bible, and I bring things out that are going to release you to live the life of generosity that you want to live. But listen, you can't be generous. Listen, my son can take my plate to the dishwasher, but if he doesn't clean up his, there's still disobedience. You see what I'm saying? My son can say, "Dad, I don't feel like putting my dish away, but how about I vacuum the floor?" Well, I'm glad you want to vacuum the floor, but that doesn't mean that you get to pick and choose what's obedience and what you still have to put your dish in the dishwasher. Any parent understands that. Our, our father has to. Our father understands that too. So, what's going on in 2 Corinthians nine five through fifteen? Here's the whole occasion for this. I, I'm going to kind of rock it through this. You have to understand why Paul wrote this passage because this is one of the most taken out of context passages in the whole Bible. We skip to, because this has some of those famous phrases in it like God loves who? Cheerful giver. <laughs> Does he love an uncheerful giver too? Is he talking about tithing here? Is he talking about first fruits? That's where we usually hear it. That's not what he's talking about. Let's look at what he's really talking about. If you read through 2 Corinthians as a whole, and you started a chapter before, you'd see what Paul was getting at. You see he's writing to the Corinth church, church at Corinth. And he's writing to them to follow up on some earlier commitment they made. You see, they found out from Paul about the church back in Jerusalem and the Christians there that were suffering and were being persecuted. And they were struggling, they were starving, they were struggling to be able to make ends meet, and they were really getting beat up. And so he put out, Paul put out an appeal to all the churches that he visited, and all the churches that he planted, and he said, listen, would you be willing to take up a missionary offering, a collection that I can combine into one offering and get it to Jerusalem so that we can distribute it to take care of the clothing needs and the food needs of your brothers and sisters that are being persecuted in another church? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we find out one of the other churches he talked to about this, the church at Macedonia. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is bragging to the Corinthians, he says, listen, this other church, they committed just like you did. And let me tell you what the Macedonians did. He said, they're more poor than you are. These people barely have clothes to, st- that, that church is a, is a, lo- a low income church. And these people are giving away their money before they're even feeding themselves. He said they were so sacrificial and so generous. And if you read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, and I'm not commanding you to give to this offering. I want you to do it with a clear conscience as your heart leads you. He's not talking about obedience here. He's talking about generosity. And he says, these Macedonians, you know why they were so eager to give? Because I told them you were so eager to give. And they've completed their offering. And now we get to the awkward part of the letter. If you would read back a few paragraphs, he says, "Um, they've turned in their offering, you haven't. But I've been telling them that you're going to join in with them. And I'm sending five of their board members to you. I'm sending five of these poor Macedonians to Corinth. And they're going to expect to see an offering when they get there. And you haven't collected the offering yet. And so Paul's trying to avoid two very uncomfortable possibilities here. If you read back through the beginning of chapter 9, you'll see number 1. He's trying to avoid the possibility that him boasting about the generosity of the Corinthians is hollow. He told everybody else how generous they were. And the Corinthians, to be fair, basically they had a lot of generous intentions. They said, we're in. We'll give. But their generous intentions hadn't been accompanied by generous actions. Have you ever been there? I'm going to give, I should do something, I should help that homeless person out, I should give in the offering, I should give more to this missionary, I should do something for my neighbor. And you have all these good impulses to be generous, and then you start thinking about it, or you forget about it, or you, know, you, you drive through Starbucks and buy two drinks for 15 bucks, and now it feels a little different. We don't get credit for generous intentions. That doesn't help. Just making a pledge or a commitment means nothing if it's not accompanied by action, right? So he's trying to avoid them showing, you know, his, his boasting to be hollow. The other thing he's trying to avoid, he says this very clearly. I'm letting you know I'm sending them to you so that when they get there, the offering will be ready for them. So that Paul will not be incredibly embarrassed and lose all credibility with this church. So on the heels of that, we read this passage. He's telling them, get ready. I'm sending people from Macedonia who will get there before my travel itinerary. says, I'll be there. They're coming to receive the offering. I want you to be ready. And then he encourages them. He says, remember this. And then we get the parts, the parts that we looked at that might be more familiar. That God loves a cheerful giver. That, that, that you, He talks about the laws, we call them the spiritual laws of reciprocity, the laws of planting and harvest. I just want to be very clear about this. There's a whole lot more that I was going to say. Well, I just got through three pages. That was pretty impressive. Okay, um, let me, you wouldn't know that. I know that. Um, uh, I'm looking at all the stuff I skipped. It must not have been that important. The, this passage is all about voluntary, generous giving. That was above and beyond what God expected. This kind of giving was and is today an act of obedience and an honor to God. It comes to the local you know the tithe the tithe comes to the local church and it goes for local ministry but this letter was written to first century blue collar mostly lower class christians in terms of their earning power who heard about a need in jerusalem and jumped at the chance to give above and beyond what was expected of them out of love for god and compassion for his people more specifically it was apostolic coaching for people to accompany their generous intentions with generous actions The prosperity gospel gets this backwards, and I'll talk about that in a second. But here's how generosity works that we've seen this passage. I don't know if this is in your notes or not, but here's how generosity works. Generosity works like, we get an analogy here, like planting and harvesting. You harvest what you plant, where you plant, after you plant, and more than you plant. You harvest what you plant, where you plant, after you plant, and more than you plant. Will you say that with me? You can say it while you're writing. You harvest what you plant, where you plant, after you plant and more than you plant. You can also go back and see this was not a new idea to Paul. You see this sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. You can go the whole way back to Genesis chapter 1 verses 11 and 12. Here's the whole design. God put this whole thing in motion. He says, let the land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind and God saw that it was good. Here's what Paul's saying. The sower is free to plant as much as he or she chooses. You can plant a lot, you can plant a little. We are free to decide how much to give and then to give what we decided to give. And what Paul's saying is that generosity should always result from an inward resolve, not from impulse or from casual decision. It shows another difference between obedience and generosity. Obedience, (laughs) obedience does not require cheerfulness, does it? Think with me. Do I need my son to be happy about putting the dish in the dishwasher? Yeah, it'd be great. At the end of the day, he just needs to put the dish in the dishwasher. Obedience is hard sometimes, isn't it? It's not a struggle for me to obey where I'm already inclined to go down that road. Where it's difficult is when I really want to tell somebody how I feel and get angry with them, but I know that's not the right thing, and that's hard. Obedience does not require cheerfulness. But sometimes you have to obey to get to cheerfulness. Generosity, though, Paul says, should be accompanied by cheerfulness because it's not expected. And what he's saying is if you can't be cheerful in giving, you ought not give because it means you're probably giving against your will. And that's not generosity. What he's saying is true generosity springs from a heart that says, I want to. And it gets great joy and happiness from giving. And how many of you have found that to be the case? Have you ever just been so excited to give something to somebody, not because you had to, but because you wanted to, and you couldn't wait to give it? That's why Christmas presents in my house get open December 2nd. (laughs) I get so fired up about this, and Christmas isn't the best example because it's not really giving in a lot of our houses. It's an exchange. We don't give expecting nothing in return. We give because someone's going to give to us and we need to have something to give back. And I've seen family fights start over when the value isn't equal. It's not really giving gifts. Gifts, by true definition of what the Bible says, a gift is given out of love, expecting nothing in return. God did not give his son to manipulate us into having a relationship with him. God gave his son because he loved us. Knowing that many people would reject the gift he gave it anyway. Exchange is more what we're used to I give you something, you give me back, and a good deal is when I get more than I gave, or I got, or, or you know, or I or gave more than I got. That's what it, that's what a good deal is. Generosity is different. Generosity says I give, and there are no strings attached to what I'm giving, and it just releases joy. So we see a difference between obedience and generosity is in the spirit and the attitude from which from which it springs. So what you plant, where you plant, after you plant more than you plant, real quick. I ran through this last week, run through it again. What Paul is saying is that when it comes to generosity, when it comes to giving above and beyond, you reap what you sow. You harvest what you plant. That means if you plant corn, you get very good. Got a lot of buy-in on that one. Try another one. You plant tomatoes, you get very good. You plant encouragement, you get a little less, okay, it's not a seed-bearing plant, but the prince he's making an analogy here, okay? You plant generosity, and I have found this to be true, you get generosity. You harvest where you plant. That means I don't plant corn in this little patch of soil over here and then drive eight miles down the road and wait for it to grow. Right? You harvest where you plant. And what this means is that you can take really good seed. And you can plant it in the middle of a parking lot. And you can sit there all day and wait for it to grow and it may not grow. So it means we ought to look at the place where we're planting and consider very seriously if that's a wise place to put our good seeds. The soil has a lot to do with your harvest. Have you ever, some of you invested, have you ever invested in a stock that went south on you? you good, hard-earned money. You bought a house that you lived in for 10 years and were $40,000 upside down on it. I've done that before. hope to not do it again, but it happens. Wasn't a problem with the seed. It was the soil. I always pray, Lord, let Echo Community Church be good soil. That people feel at ease sowing good seed into this. Let the our family be good soil. But the people who plant into us will receive a return commensurate commence with the soil. Sometimes it's not a matter of you not being generous, but you're, you're planting in the wrong fields. And you're expecting to receive a harvest in a place that's infertile. And so you have to look at those things carefully. I could talk a whole morning on that prophetically, but I won't today. Maybe sometime I will. You harvest after you plant. This is really key. I, I don't want to single out any generations, but I... I, I you don't get a harvest before you plant. But there is this mentality that says, if I don't seem to have the harvest I want, then I deserve a harvest from what someone else planted. I call that the entitlement gospel. I deserve a harvest from what someone else has planted. The problem isn't getting a harvest from what someone else has planted, because that's happened for all of us before. The problem is when I say, I deserve it. It's owed to me. The Bible doesn't teach an entitlement gospel. It teaches that if the church will be generous, needs will be met. But it also teaches that I'm not to just be the beneficiary. Out of whatever it is that God entrusts to me, whether it's a fraction of what He entrusts to you, it is enough. It is enough for me. And I will live inside of my budget. And I will be generous to the proportion that my budget allows and my heart wants me to. And you harvest more than you plant. But there's two popular teachings I want to debunk, and I've already debunked one, the entitlement. Can I just for a moment debunk a little of this prosperity gospel teaching? Because it's right here. Um, Entitlement gospel says, I deserve a harvest from what someone else has planted. Prosperity gospel says this, I planted first so God owes me a prosperous harvest. Prosperity gospel says God wants everybody to be wealthy, and the more you have, the more holy you are. You also have the, the poverty gospel that says the, God wants us all to be poor. And the less I have, the more holy I am. And then you have where we land, and that's called stewardship. We're economic theists. God owns it all. We're just the stewards. But the prosperity gospel says this. I am the owner of everything. And every time I give, God now owes me a hundredfold return on my harvest. In other words, I give first, and then God owes me a harvest. It's that teaching that says if you put your tithe in there, you're going to automatically get raises and increase and wealth building. And if you give the minister $100 a day to buy his jet, you're going to get a thousand-time return. You know what the Bible says? That's all backwards. I don't tithe so God will bless me. I'm blessed so I tithe. I don't give God 10% first and then sit back and wait for him to send me my next paycheck. That's not the order that it works in. When I receive income, that comes from God. His name's not on the check, but he put me on this earth at this time with these skills in this area, with these abilities, and opened up these doors. He could have dropped me off in 17th century Siberia, and I would not have what I have today. So before I think I have a lot to do with it, let me just step back from the table and say he had a whole lot more to do with it than I did. When he gives to me, I am blessed, and so I return to him. Prosperity Gospel says that we begin the cycle That we have it all and when we decide to grace God with our gift, he is then contractually obligated to pour wealth back to us. That's not generosity and that's not obedience. That's some warped sense of God manipulation and it leads people to disillusionment and leads them to thinking that giving doesn't work. Generosity is not some crackpot get rich scheme that the Bible invented. It's not. It's not like pull a rabbit out of the hat, put $100 in the offering, and you're going to get a check from somebody you don't expect this week for $1,000. The Bible teaches obedience because God owns it all. And I return to him and I honor him with the first fruit. And I am free to be as generous as I would like to be with that other 90% or whatever other percentage that it is. So I just want to take a moment to debunk those. What generosity produces? Generosity produces a couple things we see here. An even greater ability to be generous Verse 11 says, if you're generous, God will always make sure that you have enough seed to be generous. In other words, you don't have to worry that you're going to run out of seed if you choose to be generous. It doesn't say you're responsible for making more seed. It says God will make sure that you have it. It'll produce more thanks to God. I cannot tell you how many times I've witnessed generosity or participated in it. When the first words out of somebody's mouth is, thank God. Whether they know him or not. My new neighbor at Northwind Road. I introduced myself to him yesterday. He's out in his riding lawnmower. Just bought the house next door to me. I felt like he deserved an explanation for what was going on at my house. He has an awesome beard. And I said, you know, we're chatting for a minute. He's all excited. And he says, yeah, I saw you chasing your son around the yard. What's his name? I said chase and he said uh you know he starts talking and you know i was like oh you know i have a family yeah you know me you know i just got engaged and we're living here in this house together i'm like oh boy here we go and i'm like um i just let him talk and and i said and and i said he said well i just got laid off from my job I was like oh man i have some contacts i said i might be able to help you what what kind of job you have he's like well i'm a a liquor distributor i "I don't have any contacts in that field (laughs) um he dropped about four f-bombs and was just talking and then um and then he says something about, yeah, I just scraped enough money to buy a riding lawnmower, but I know winter's coming, and I don't, a, I don't have a snowbiller. I said, well, you are in luck, my friend. I said, I bought, I invested in a snowbiller last year, and I said, I always took care of the driveway at the previous owner's house, and I'm on it. He's like, really? It's like, absolutely. He goes, thank God. I don't know if it was just a phrase he picked up somewhere. He proceeded to tell me when he found out what I did for a living. He, when people find out what I do for a living... <laughs> I wish you could be there. It's great. It's great theater. But um, I didn't tell him. He asked, he's like, so what do you do? I was like, well, (laughs) I'm a minister. Oh, oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry for that. Oh, no, it's fine. It's like, you know, it's like, but I'm not one of the snakes, you know, we don't have snakes in the backyard or burn animals or anything. He's like, but dude, if you do, it's fine. I'm all for religious freedom. And I was like, it's okay. It's okay. I just said, listen, man, I got your driveway taken care of. I said, but here's the thing. You got that really nice riding lawnmower. And I said, uh, I really want to, he's like, anytime you, so we agreed this thing, we're going to, you know, I get to share his right along where he gets to share. Think, but the first thing out of his mouth, thank God. You well, know, a pastor, that might just be a thing that he says, yeah, but it's this little confession of the vacuum of his soul that recognizes that there is a God who cares about his practical needs. And maybe he just sent that guy in that house next door that Kendra and Chase and I, can be a light to him and to his fiancee, Teresa. And October 7th next year when they get married, maybe I get to do that wedding. Maybe I get to say that these two have made a decision to follow Jesus in their life. I don't know. But can I tell you that generosity can be one of the single greatest evangelistic opportunities we all have in front of us? I didn't have money to go buy him a snowblower, but I had one to share. What do you have that you could be generous with that could open up a door For you to show and share love of Christ with people in your life. It produces more thanks for God. It produces joy in in seeing God meet people's needs. We read in verse 12, Paul says, When we take this offering to the Jerusalem Christians, they're going to have so much joy in their heart to God, and they're going to begin to cry out to him, and they're going to start to pray for you. It says there's going to be affection and love among God's people. When you get involved in generosity, that's what it produces. Notice the whole message of generosity isn't give so that you can get. It isn't if you have a need in your own life, go give generously to somebody else and then God's obligated to give you a hundred times that in return. It says you get to be part of a cycle of what God is doing in the lives of people that he cares about. And he'll always make sure, You know, some of these verses aren't in the Bible, but you know, I remember one of my pastors saying to me all the time, if God can get it through you, he will get it to you. If God can get it through you, he'll get it to you. So how do we apply this? You're saying, Pastor, listen, I'm all in. I want to be more generous. In fact, I I think I am generous to a degree, but I want to be even more generous. But sometimes I just run into into some barriers. I'll give you a mouthful of things you can take with you real quick. I bundled it all into one statement. Live inside your budget. Honor God with your first fruits, and then you'll be free to give above and beyond as you're willing and able. You can't begin to be generous if you're not even paying your rent. Hello? Hey. Hey. You might say, you know what, I really want to be generous today and all I have left is rent money. I'm going to go go pay my... You don't bankrupt yourself into generosity. If you're not taking care of your needs at home, you're in no position to be generous right now. You need to get your house in order first. You need to start being obedient and disciplined with your own budget. Live inside your budget. Do you have one? Do you know how much comes in and how much goes out every month? You should. Then my question is, if you don't have a budget, get one. Develop one, and then do you budget God's way or do you budget your way? Do you give God what's first or what's left over? Do you give God a defined percentage or what you feel like on any, on any given week? Well, pastor, you don't understand. I just bought a new house or a new car, and I can't squeeze tithing, and that's because you're not giving God the first fruit. That means that you're budgeting. You give God whatever's left over. Where I live is my tithe comes first. When the bank told me, hey, you can borrow X amount for a house because you make X amount, I said, no, I live on this amount. You don't understand. You could. I totally understand. I'm, gonna, I'm looking at this and I'd really like this. Well, why not? Because I want to do other things with my money than just have a house. That's how I live. Well, I don't have to live how you live. You don't. But can I tell you it's really enjoyable? It's not magic. When you start to live on less than you make, it's not magic. You just have money left over. Should I be sitting by the mailbox? No, just do your budget. Well, I can't do that. Why? Because our society tells you you need to have things to be somebody. Said it before. Here's the curse. We buy things we don't even need with money we don't even have to impress people we don't even like. God doesn't have any problem with you having things. The problem is when the things have you. And I just want you to be released. Because guess what? If you want to be generous, it costs. And I want to free up some resource in your life to be generous. And if you're not taking care of your budget... You're going to always feel guilty because you're not, you might be willing to be generous, but you're not able. You have to be willing and able to be generous. If you're unwilling, that's a matter of your heart that only God can change. If you're unable, it's a matter of your discipline or your circumstances. Sometimes it is our circumstances, and there's reasons and seasons why we can't be generous. But about 90% of the time, it's because of our reckless choices that put us in the position that we are. And so you have to understand where you are with that. So that's how you apply it. For some of us, that might be, uh, you have to get honest with God about your money habits. You don't have to get honest with me, um, unless you come to my office of financial counsel, then you're gonna have to get honest with me. But you have to get honest with God about your money habits. You have to live inside your budget. Do you budget as an economic atheist or as a theist? Are you willing and able to give? Then give. Are you willing to give, but unable to give? Let's find some discipline in your life. Let's find some solution for that. Are you able to give but unwilling? That's a matter of your heart. And I pray that God changes your heart to be like his. Is your financial report card the result of your choices or your circumstances? Honor God with the first percentage of your income. Are you honoring him with what's first or what's left over? And ask yourself, where is my heart tugging at me to give above and beyond? Doing more begins with doing something. Don't dismiss what you can do while daydreaming about what you can't do. I've told you before, you know, after the missionaries were here, I had someone say, Pastor, I would love to write a $5,000 check to them, but I can't. And so I didn't do anything. I said, well, what can you do? I could probably only do $50. And that's what you need to do. Sometimes your checkbook won't let you be as generous as your heart wants to be. But don't dismiss what you can do simply because you're daydreaming about what you would really like to do. If more of us would act on God's not asking you to act on what you can't do. God's encouraging you. To live your life in such a way that when you want to be generous, you will have the resources at your disposal to be generous. But if you skip over the first part of it, which is budgeting God's way, which is honoring with the first fruits, which is living inside of your budget, which is not taking on more than you can chew, your life is going to be filled with regular opportunities to be generous that you will be unable to meet because you can't get your house in order. God knows if you get mature and you get serious about discipleship, these generous impulses are going to come. And they're going to be there. And there's nothing more frustrating than to be willing but unable. So God is encouraging us to be able to live the generous life we want to live, get our house in order first. Then when those moments come to be generous, you will be able to give freely. Why? Because Paul says this. Because he says in the very last verse, Thanks be to God for this gift you've given us, too wonderful for words. That gift is available to you, my friend. As our worship team comes, can I just ask you, have you said yes to Jesus? I know this teaching on giving. Listen, you, can, you don't have to be a Christian to take something out of what we talked about this morning. They're good, solid biblical principles, which will follow you wherever you go. But you can also give away 10% of your money and be generous and spend eternity separated from God. You see, being obedient with a tithe or an offering or being generous to, to good organizations, they're good things to do, but they don't save us. All of our good actions, the Bible says, are just like filthy rags. At the end of the day, God doesn't want performance. He wants relationship. We don't have to perform for God to love us. He loves us. And out of letting that change us, we should want to respond and live for him. So I want to give an opportunity for anybody that's listening to this podcast or here this morning who wants to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ or someone who says, I've drifted a long way from Christ. And I want to come back to him today. I want to renew that commitment. And I, 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 want to, I want to pick up where I left off with Christ. I want to give you a chance to make good on that commitment this morning. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me today? If you would like to decide to make Jesus Lord of your life today, here's a prayer you can pray. I, you can pray it right in your seat. You can whisper it right out loud to God. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross in my place. And I believe you rose from the dead and you're alive today. Just like the Bible says. I confess I need you. I step off of the throne of my life and I invite you to sit in its place. Thank you for forgiving me for my sins. Because I've lived my life without you. I've done life my way and today that ends. I'm going to live life your way. I confess that you're my Lord. I confess that you're my Savior. I look forward to following you as you transform me moment by moment, day by day, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving me. In your name I pray, amen.